for all the people who are sick. Yeah, sickness is going around with this weather, this faux uh, winter will ever figure itself out. Um, but summer's coming. <laughs> it's, well, it's fine. We'll survive. Um, I don't think Mom Rose. Pray for Mom Rose, yeah. I know she's, her COPD was acting up this week. Um, we had, uh, I think a couple weeks ago, I told you about the death of Joyce Harrington. Her daughter-in-law passed away yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, so we want to remember uh, Dr. Chuck Kelly at the seminary. Um, he's the president emeritus. Um, he's going through an incredibly tough time losing his mother-in-law and now his wife. Um, the whole seminary family and really the New Orleans family as a whole because the Harrington Kelly family are uh, Baptist royalty in the city. So they know a lot of people that we know. They've, they've been involved with ministry in the city for a long, long time. And she's had a long battle with cancer that's now over, um, but she's home. So um, we, uh, we pray that they're able to grieve well and that um, they're able to get to a place of joy and rejoicing <coughs> and remembering of Dr. Rhonda. So uh, let's, uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you that, uh, I just thank you that through everything in life, um, the good and the bad, and, and, and the things that we go through in life uh, that we were never meant for, that you are right there with us, and that you are making things new, and you are making us whole. Um, and Lord, even as we're in this season of Lent, where it's uh, sacrifice and looking at our uh, our own death and how our life is going to uh, end. Um, it's a sobering, somber thing, Lord, but um, because of the cross, it's a joyful thing. Um, so, Father, I pray that the good news would go out even greater in this season. Um, Father, show us as a community how to love our neighbors and love each other well in your name. Um, but, Father... As always on Sunday morning, we pray as you taught us to pray. 
our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, church. If you're able to stand and join us in worship, please do.
again. I feel like Aaron Carpenter switching instruments. Um, whoever has our psalm reading this morning, uh, Justin. Psalm 25, 1 through 10. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be put to shame. Do not let my enemies exult over me. Do not let those who wait for you be put to shame. Let them be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your path. To you, O Lord, lift up my soul. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Be mindful of your mercy, O Lord, and of your steadfast love. For they have been from of old. To you, O Lord, lift up my soul. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. For those who keep his covenant and his decrees. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Good morning, church. Good morning, Good morning. Good morning. I'm reading from the book of Peter, chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring him to God. He was put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. Which also he went and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in former times did not obey. And God made a patient in those days, and Noah, and in the building of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were saved through water for baptism. This prisoner now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers made subject to him. Amen. Mark 1 9 through 15. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And the voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts and the angels waited on him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Please pray with us. God, God of our salvation, in faithfulness and steadfast love, you lead us in the way of truth and life. There is no wilderness so vast that you cannot lose out of your hand. No darkness so deep that the path is taken from your eyes. Yet we have rebelled against your leading 
and we pride and fear we close our ears to the voice that loves us. Refusing to be driven by your spirit, we wander through deserts of our own making, alone. Let us hear your voice again, O Lord, and grant us the courage to follow where you lead. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. Through Christ, you are forgiven, you are welcome, you are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord. His mercy and steadfast love have been from of old. God of wilderness and water, your son was baptized and tempted as we are. Guide us through this season that we may not avoid struggle, but open ourselves to blessing through the cleansing depths of repentance and the heaven-rending words of the Spirit. Amen. Oh 
us the humility that we need and that we desperately so often fail to fail to bring. But the same way that you covered us with your blood to cleanse us of our sin, to bring us back into relationship with you, you can also provide all the gifts that you have that are yours to give. We pray for the sermon this morning. We ask that you would move into our hearts. Send your spirit on this place this morning. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you. You all can be seated. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, everyone who made it through Mardi Gras. Uh, happy Sunday, but mournful Lent, I believe, is the correct greeting. Uh, Meg's not here. We're going to have to ask her next week. Um, having Ash Wednesday fall on Valentine's Day. This year was a weird mix of emotions for anyone who was paying attention to the church calendar. Um, you know, it's hard to find a gift that really says, I love you, and also let us contemplate our deaths together. I tried to order a dozen roses from a fe- in the coming in a funeral urn instead of a vase, but apparently that is, is just not a thing. Um, in the end, it didn't matter. Uh, Annie and I and AJ and Ellie missed both Tuesday and Wednesday because we were all sick. And I'm sure you can probably tell from my voice, I'm still in some ways recovering. Uh, apparently, the last time those two days overlapped was in the 40s. And so we're just going to have to you know, hit up the next one like 80 years from now. Um, please go with me, if you will, to the book of Philippians. And we're going to be in chapter 2. Last week, we we wrapped up a a sermon series on spiritual gifts, talking about the work of the Spirit to bring unity to His church. A unity which the book of Galatians tells us flows out of humility and patience. Humility and patience. My, My hope with that sermon series was to get us thinking about the ways in which we practically love each other. I'm hoping each person in the church will go about finding an intersection of the needs of our community here with your gifts and abilities. Um, And do your best to build up the body of Christ, inviting others into family through participation in God's work of redemption. What is your fit? What is your role? And do you have the work of the local church in the right place of priority in your life. Above all else, Peter writes, keep loving one another earnestly as good stewards of God's varied grace. It has been my habit each year at the church to do a a mini-series through the season of Lent on some topic which helps us forget ourselves and focus on God. I was joking with Robin Uh, earlier that it's been four years and I might just start repeating sermons. I I seriously thought about my, my, uh, I loved that um, introspective we did several years ago on the different people involved in the passing, but I resisted that temptation uh, and we are instead uh, going to focus over the next four weeks on humility this week and the next three weeks. Uh, Humility, hopefully to learn what it means to be humble. Uh, To give us a way of living that's not wrapped up in in pride and vanity, which is definitive of the world in which we live. If you want to be different, if you want to be a rebel, if you want to be conformed to Christ rather than the world, I would encourage you in your pursuit of Christ in everything 
to pursue humility. Specifically, I'm going to be borrowing heavily from a book called Humility Rules um, on the teachings of Benedict of Nursia. And, and I'll tell you a little bit about him, but mainly I want us to learn from the scriptures and, and the tradition of the church uh, what it means to pursue humility in Christ, that we might become less and Christ might become more in our lives. Uh, even though I'll be citing Benedict through this mini-series over the next couple of weeks, the point of this, again, is to focus on Christ in his sufferings through Lent uh, to prepare ourselves for the Easter season. Jesus is our truest example of humility, and the Holy Spirit is the source of humility and life in us. But Benedict is able to blaze a path as one who has gone this way before. Um. Benedict, he grew up in Italy at the turn of the 6th century. Uh, it was a tumultuous time. This was when uh, Western Rome was falling to barbarian invaders. And, and Benedict had to learn to live a life devoted to Christ in a world that had been essentially turned upside down. Uh, he is famous. He's sainted in many faith traditions for founding the Benedictine order of monks, which were very remarkably exists still to this day over 1,500 years Later, St. Joseph's, which is about 45 minutes from here, still lives and practices his rule. Uh, he took his example from Christ and took on 12 disciples at each monastery that he founded to teach them a pathway to humility and through humility to thriving in Christ. I'm going to let his rule be our guide through this mini-series. We have uh, four weeks before Palm Sunday, including today. And his ladder of humility has 12 rungs, which if you're doing the math is about three steps per week. Uh, think about this like a version of AA for Pride, the original 12-step program. Uh, I thought it was important to have three points for each sermon, too. As uh, a Baptist allowing a saint of old to guide our discussion, I thought three points per sermon would just make us all feel a little more comfortable. Uh, through Benedict's, or though Benedict's work was about a thousand years before the Reformation that divided the Protestant and the Catholic faith tradition, so he's as much in our tradition as anyone's, anyone else's. In, in many ways, Benedict is a door into a lost age. It's a door we seldom walk through. Uh, because of the distance, it's so far removed from our place and time, but perhaps, again, because of that distance, standing with him there in the 6th century can help us see our century for what it is. Uh, for this morning, we are looking at the fear of God, self-denial, and obedience. Let's read our passage for today, Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to be rereading verses 1 through 18. If you will, if you will please stand with me as we read. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. <clears throat> Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, 
taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated. Thank you. Pray with me briefly. <coughs> Father God, I pray this morning. As I always do, Lord, just that you would minister to our hearts and minds this morning your truth and your word. Because we know your truth will set us free, and we desperately long to be free. We pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's not often the advice you get in church, but our passage gives us that advice today. Fear God. Benedict tells us the first step into humility is fearing God, and this particular biblical teaching, I would wager, is one that our culture broadly despises. Again, if you want to be a rebel in this day and place, fear God and pursue humility. Our culture despises the fear of God because, honestly, I think it's because we're already so afraid already of seemingly everything. Uh, we're afraid of losing the good things and the people in our lives. We're afraid of not being successful in life. We're afraid of the way the country is headed. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of being unhappy. Uh, anxiety rates are up in our society, especially among young people, by over 80%. We are an anxious people, we Americans. And especially in terms of religion, there are enough preachers out there willing to paint God in terms of an angry, critical father that oftentimes I just want to raise my hand and ask whether or not we've forgotten grace. I know Christians who seem so afraid of making mistakes that they miss entirely the beauty of this world and the people in it that God has created, always avoiding some inevitable crash into reality. Our culture hates the idea of the fear of God, which is why the idea is so valuable to us today. To quote G.K. Chesterton, we don't really need a religion that is right where we are right. We need a religion that is right where we are wrong. We need the fear of God in our lives today. Notice 
what Paul writes, that we're meant to work out salvation in fear and in trembling. So he's talking then to Christians in this passage. I would argue in many ways, learning to fear God is our participation in our salvation. <clears throat> Meaning we learn to fear not what God has done or what he will do in our lives, but we learn to fear what it would be like if God were not here to save us. We learn to fear our own sins and the effects of our actions upon our lives without God's salvation. The fear of God, Paul means, is not the fear a child fears whenever she hears her abusive father pull into the driveway at night. That is not the kind of fear he means. The fear of God is like the fear I felt this week when my wife first started getting sick and I realized how even a week without her contributions to our family and raising our children, uh, what that is like, uh, realized what it feels like to have her down and not able to help out the way she usually does. I am afraid of her dying. I'm afraid of her leaving me. Not because I think she will or because she's edging that way or threatening it, because, but because of how wonderful it is to have her in my life. That is a very different kind of fear. It's fear all the same, but it's one that makes me approach her with greater love, appreciation, and admiration. In my bones, though, the thought of Annie leaving or dying, the thought of my life without her makes me afraid. But especially in this Lenten season of fasting, I can admit I do not need her. There you go. That's a, that's a good slogan for Nash Wednesday slash Valentine's Day shirt, right? I love you, but ultimately I don't need you. Uh, it would be unbelievably hard to lose her, but we would recover. I am more afraid of losing God than her. In fact, my fear of God casts out pretty much all of my other fears. I can be alone. I can be a failure even. I can be rejected and ashamed, but so long as God still loves me, I can find joy, hope, and purpose in him. I know what my life would be like without God in it. I have thought about this constantly. I know it every time I consider my own sins. And it is a long life wasted on pride and pursuit of success at everyone else's expense. I see that very clearly in me. Fear of God is the first part of the gospel and the first step toward humility because fear of God teaches you that about your own sin and your utter dependence upon him. Without him, I am lost in the outer dark. Without his spirit in me, I am empty. Without him, I am never truly satisfied. When I consider my salvation, I'm afraid of my world without God in it. Without God, my life is hell in this life and in the next. With him, God's perfect love casts out fear. In the end, fearing the Lord allows you to let go all of your other fears and rest in the fact that God is enough. He is enough. Fearing God casts out every fear because God has promised never to leave or forsake us. Even in our worst mistakes, we can be confident in him that our worst fears will never be realized. 
that in him we will always be forgiven and welcomed and loved. And nothing can change that. No amount of loss, no amount of failure, no amount of sin on our part. Come what may, your Father will be all you need. So fear the Lord, one. And two, the next step toward humility is self-denial. Look at verse four. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. And as always, Christ in this is our example. Paul goes on, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, he writes. The book I'm using through this mini-series, Humility Rules, it's funny. It's meant to be funny. Uh, the cover has a medieval portrait of a, uh, a cardinal, and where his red sash should be, instead he's holding a red skateboard. Um, uh, my, uh, one of my coworkers in my office, we're, we're reading through this book right now. He saw all these pictures in and through the book and looked up, man, who is this young and edgy artist who's taking all of these pictures of, of monks and just changing them a little bit, uh, to make them funny. And it turns out it's the author's mom. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, it's funny. Veta, uh, the author, he, he titles this chapter on self-denial. He says, the title of the chapter is, Don't Be True to Yourself. Which is his way of pointing out just how different Benedict's steps are from the advice we usually receive in our time and our place. Don't be true to yourself. Be true instead to something greater than yourself. Be true to Christ and his kingdom. Be true to your family and your friends, to your community and church. I love the way Paul phrases it in our passage. It doesn't look like a rejection of your own interests, but humility looks like loving your neighbor as you love yourself. An inclusion of other people's thriving in the midst of your own. Veta also writes, self-fulfillment is not about self-satisfaction. Let's say that again, because that's just so different and so profound. Self-fulfillment is not about self-satisfaction. It's just wildly controversial, but it's true, and therefore it's deeply needed. Self-fulfillment is not about self-satisfaction. There is a difference between fulfilling your desires and living with purpose. You can see this truth played out all around you. The purpose of a meal, for instance, is to be eaten, which destroys it. The purpose of clothing is to be worn, which eventually ruins it. Or take the image that Paul uses in the passage itself, this common question of our lives being like a cup. And so often we approach this image and we ask, is the cup half empty or is it half full? Christianity would tell you the point is not how full your cup is. And the point of life is not to try to fill it all the way up. The point is whether or not you're using your cup for its purpose, drinking from it, pouring yourself out, as Paul says in this passage, filling others up. 
Self-fulfillment is not self-satisfaction. Oftentimes, pouring yourself out for the sake of others will bring you closer to self-fulfillment than filling your own cup because it brings you closer to your purpose. Our individualistic culture would tell you to get yours, to take what you want, to be true to yourself. Christianity would tell you to give yourself away, to deny yourself, and be true instead to Christ. And in that, you'll find self-fulfillment. Most of what people are calling being true to yourself these days is just selfishness repackaged and rebranded. You're not being true to yourself by neglecting your family, for instance. If you being true to yourself leaves them behind unconsidered, the Bible would say you're lying to yourself and trading the truth about God for a lie. You may find a kind of satisfaction that way, but you'll never find fulfillment because it runs counter to our purpose as human beings, which is to live within healthy, healthy, redemptive family, be it a nuclear family or a church family, and being faithful to each other. We need each other. Practically speaking, being true to myself would mean being a jerk all the time. Uh, that is true of me. <laughs> um, wouldn't we all rather I be true to something besides myself? <laughs> It may be true to yourself to care for your own needs and give little, for example, to provide for the people around you or to provide for the poor. It may be true to you, but only because you also, like me, are sinful and broken. Humility dictates looking at ourselves and not being proud of who we are. We're meant to look at ourselves and see how far we are from the way we were created to be from who we were meant to be. And then also at the same time to know how deeply loved we are in Christ and how capable he is of healing every wound, of turning back every sin, of changing every part of us which most deeply needs to be changed. Humility is found in fear of the Lord, in self-denial, and lastly for today, in obedience. I have a friend who's an author uh, mostly at this point he writes historical fiction, but uh, at one point a couple of years ago he visited a, an international in, interdenominational monastery in France named Taizé. Some of y'all may be familiar. Uh, he had an opportunity even to sit down with one of the monks and his first question, and I love, love this story, his first question to the monk was, man, what is the most difficult thing about these vows that you've taken. And before the monk could answer him, uh, my friend, who, who's a young guy, you know, he jumped in and he goes, is it celibacy? <laughs> and the, uh, the older monk just kind of smiled and looked down and um, said to my friend, no. <laughs> um, he said the most, most difficult part of my vows is obedience constantly and throughout my entire life verse 9 being found in human form he, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross we humble ourselves when we become obedient but obedience is incredibly difficulty Obedient to whom? 
Lewis would ask me, who? You? Pastor? <laughs> to which I would say, not ultimately. Ultimately, we're to be obedient to God. But I would also say, oftentimes, obedience to God is learned through obedience to others. I was thinking this week of how to instill this idea in my children. And hopefully this uh, can get you into just how difficult obedience is. I, I want them to be confident enough to challenge the world around them. I want them to be confident enough, for example, to challenge injustice in the world. Authorities of all sorts which overreach and have rules which either don't make sense or actively harm people. I want them to learn the importance, for example, of civil disobedience in our faith culture, in our tradition, to learn about, for instance, cults, to learn about predators and those people who would use authority over them to abuse them. I want them to stand up for themselves among their friends. I can already see in our eight-year-old how important his friend's opinions of him are becoming in his life. I want him to be able to disobey them, to be assertive, and not just do what he's told or what everybody else is doing. Disobedience oftentimes is deeply important in a person's life. But in humility, I also know deeply before any teachers, before any professors or bosses will drive my children nuts, before friends influence them in bad ways, before any of that, the first unjust authority and influence over each of my children will be me. In humility, I know that I am often a bad influence, that I am often unjust. From time to time, I have been wrong. Usually with me, it's I'm too harsh, or I come in with unrealistic expectations. But even with all of my flaws, it's also deeply important for my children to learn to obey me. Of utmost importance, oftentimes. Even like we talked about earlier, it's important for them to learn to fear me. I want them to fear what their lives would be like without my rules in them. I need them to know that so that when they're not around me, they will still consider them. I need them to see the danger, for instance, of crossing the street without looking both ways. To fear the relational consequences of being rude to other adults and friends. To fear breaking my rules, because oftentimes my rules keep them alive and healthy. I need to teach them obedience, even to me, even as sinful as I am. Obedience is hard precisely because we live under unjust authority, constantly. Ultimately, we obey God our Father and fear Him alone, but all of obedience is complicated by our own sin and brokenness. Even in just fearing and obeying God, wouldn't it be so much easier if we could all just directly follow God? If we could all just directly hear from him, not have to pursue biblical interpretation or knowledge in the midst of a community, but in humility, we have to recognize that even we get, get it wrong sometimes, even with the perfect truth of the word of God, we misinterpret it. Even with the perfection of our Lord, we misinterpret hearing from him. We fail to see beyond the common mistakes of people our own age and of our own times. We need to hear from others. 
We even need to learn to obey them. Benedict models a radical kind of obedience in his rule. He talks about grumbling and gossip as the death of community. He says, grumbling is always damaging, even when, and this is, this is interesting, he says, especially when the grumbling is right. Vetter writes, the hallmark of a really strong soul is the ability to be joyful, even when the going gets tough, because a good reason doesn't make grumbling, which is a form of ingratitude, less wicked. One might even argue that grumbling for a good reason is worse than grumbling for a bad reason, precisely because there is a basis for it. Justifiable grumbling, he writes, is more likely to spread. I remember in all of this, I was thinking about this. I've never forgotten this conversation, even though this must have been over 20 years ago now. A conversation I had with a high school English teacher about poetry. I, I think we were reading uh, E. E. Cummings or Shakespeare, um, and I pointed out to her how many grammatical rules that he was breaking in his poem. And she said the best poets oftentimes break the rules. And so I asked her why we spend so much time learning grammatical rules in school if the point is just to break them. And she told me this. And this is the part I'd never forget. The people who know a language best are able to break the rules of that language in the most meaningful ways. Obedience is like that. We have to learn obedience in the midst of unjust authority before we know what it means to obey a higher law and power. Before we're able to break rules and laws in a way that serves the people who come after us. Until then, you're just rebelling like every teenager does against their parents. Again, if you want to rebel in our current society, pursue humility. That's the thing in our day and age that no one is doing. Through fear of God, through self-denial, through obedience, we can begin to humble ourselves. And when we do humble ourselves, we can enter into real community. Please pray with me. God, if I'm honest, I don't often pray for humility because I do not want you to answer that prayer. Lord, I want to be proud. Every part of me wants to be proud of the things that I have done, God, of the person I am. But I do this morning ask for each and every one of us, Lord, that you would humble us, that you would show us both through conviction and action, God, just how small we are. God, that you would teach us what it means to fear you. God, what it means to not have you intimately involved with every aspect of our lives. God, would you teach us to be small? Lord, to empty ourselves like you emptied yourself, even to the point of death on a cross. God, wherever you are calling us, may it be into the same paths that you have taken. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. Adam is not here this morning to lead us in 
our time of invitation. So I would invite you, just as I always do, into prayer. Um, I would invite you to sing along with the song today or uh, just sit where you are and pray. I'll be in the back if you want to pray with me, but um, invite the Lord into your life uh, to draw you into humility this morning.
Before we go today, will you please stand and join me in singing the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Go in grace and peace to love and serve the Lord.